Our reading is from Hosea chapter 9, starting to read at verse 5. What will you do on the day of your appointed festivals, on the feast days of the Lord? Even if they escape from destruction, Egypt will gather them and Memphis will bury them. Their treasures of silver will be taken over by briars and thorns will overrun their tents. The days of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this. Because your sins are so many and your hostility so great, the prophet is considered a fool, the inspired person a maniac. The prophet, along with my God, is the watchman over Ephraim, yet snares await him on all his paths and hostility in the house of his God. They have sunk deep into corruption, as in the days of Gibeah. God will remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. But when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them of every one. Woe to them when I turn away from them. I have seen Ephraim like Tyre planted in a pleasant place, but Ephraim will bring out their children to the slayer. Give them, Lord, what will you give them? Give them wombs that miscarry and breasts that are dry. Because of all their wickedness in Gilgal, I hated them there. Because of their sinful deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will no longer love them. All their leaders are rebellious. Ephraim is blighted. Their root is withered. They yield no fruit. Even if they bear children, I will slay their cherished offspring. My God will reject them because they have not obeyed him. They will be wanderers among the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. A brand new, no expense spared wellness center has been opened in an ancient spa town, uh, a town that's uh, down on its luck. It's had better days. For, de- uh, for decades, it's become a kind of backwater, uh, known more for its bypass than its attractions. 
But with this new facility, it's now a, a real destination rather than a, a diversion. The town's inhabitants are just delighted. All kinds of people have invested their life savings in this brand new project. It's going to turn everything round. Because you see, this town is quite small and the same families have been there for generations. Everybody is pretty much related to everybody else. Then the spa's medical officer, Thomas Stockman, fears that the waters feeding the spa just might contain some life-threatening bacteria. Well, now the results are back from the lab, and he's certain of it. He writes up the findings. The local paper is going to print his report. But the town's mayor is, in fact, his brother. And his father-in-law is one of the spa's major investors. Tom does further tests just to be sure, because he suddenly realizes that a lot is at stake. The further tests, results come back, and yes, his worst suspicions are confirmed. And in fact, his father-in-law's tannery, just upriver, seems to be one of the primary sources for the problem. And in fact, his father-in-law's tannery, has been poisoning the river for years. And the, the, eff, uh, the effects are going to take decades to reverse. So Stockman knows he has no alternative. He is absolutely determined the spa must be shut down. Otherwise, people will die. It's guaranteed. People will die. But one by one, uh, the various interest groups in the town get wind of this. Uh, and uh, you can just imagine it, can't you? Sort of unholy alliances are formed. And pressure is put on the editor of the newspaper. You must not print so Stockman calls a meeting in the town hall and he's going to read his paper aloud to all who attend. But tempers rise, the heat uh, rises and the hostility grows and Stockman himself begins to face real uh, personal attacks. This makes him more belligerent and determined and he starts accusing people in the town, including his brother, the mayor, and various others, of all kinds of things, insulting them and being, calling them too small-minded to accept the truth. And people erupt at this meeting. And people start chanting at the meeting that Tom Stockman, the town doctor, is an enemy of the people. And some go out immediately to start attacking Tom Stockman's home. You can just imagine it. I wonder if you realize that that, in fact, is the basic plot of Henrik Ibsen's powerful play called An Enemy of the People. 
And it ends with Tom Stockman refusing to leave the town, holed up in his house, stubbornly clinging to what he knows to be true, but he's alone. Even his family have deserted him. But he's determined. The people must understand. And in his words, they must see how considerations of expediency turn morality and justice upside down. Short-termism. Pragmatism. We just got to keep this ship on afloat. We just got to make sure this thing works. And it becomes clear that at heart, people are more concerned for their reputation than for the risks. They're more concerned for profits than for protection. Does that sound familiar? It's actually quite a, a big trope in, in cinema. It could easily have been the plot of the film, I don't know if you saw it, Erin Brockovich. It's based on a true story. Funnily enough, it's actually a key to the plot of Jaws. And in fact, Steven Spielberg um, had Ibsen's play clearly in mind when he was making the film Jaws. So uh, instead of a poisoned uh, spa, you've got a shark. But it comes down to the same story. Roy Scheider's character in, uh, in Jaws is Dr. Stockman. Look down at chapter 9 and verse 8, would you? The prophet, along with my God, is the watchman over Ephraim, yet snares, <clears throat> snares await him on all his paths and hostility in the house of his God. Think about it. Who are the watchmen? What does a watchman do? Well, in some ways, it's the very definition of public service, isn't it? The watchmen stay awake at night to watch, which means that the people can afford to sleep. They can sleep soundly. They trust the watchman to have the town's best interests at heart to be alert to attacks after nightfall or perhaps the onslaught of wildfires. I don't know whether you've seen the horrifying footage from Turkey. We've seen all kinds of things in North America in recent weeks as well. Terrifying. And when there is danger, people trust the watchman to wake them up in time in order to do something about it. They can't solve the problem, but they, they can rouse the town to do something. To be a watchman, therefore, is essential, but thankless. Like street cleaners, or traffic police, or all manner of other professions that um, we don't think about but boy, do we know it when they're not there. And that is Hosea's job. That is God's job. And what do they get? Well, verse 8, man traps on the road, hatred at the temple. Just look in the previous verse, verse 7. The days of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this. 
the job of the watchman to rouse them, but they're snoozing away in the comfort of their own beds, or worse, in each other's beds, indulging themselves in all kinds of different ways. It doesn't really make much difference what they're driven by self-gratification and selfishness. The leaders in particular. And when the watchmen come and their alarm calls are sounded, they toll the bells. Sounds specifically designed to shake them. I mean, nobody likes the alarm clock, but we depend on it very often. Designed specifically to shake people out of their days. What do they get? Well, because your sins are so many and your hostility so great, the prophet is considered a fool. The inspired person, a maniac. Was Tom Stockman a maniac? Oh, go back to bed, man. Don't be insane. There's no threat. We're fine. Stop being an idiot. Let us sleep. Are you the people's friend or just a troublemaker? You're enjoying this, aren't you? You love it. Just leave us alone. Go back to bed. Now, there's something in verse 7 a little ambiguous. I wonder if you, you noticed. Is the prophet considered a, a fool as the kind of inevitable consequence of the pile-up of Israel's sins? In effect, you know, they're blinded by their sins, so they call light dark, black, white. They, they, they fail to see that the watchman is speaking for their benefit. Is that what's going on? Or... Is the prophet considered a fool as a divine punishment? So God makes them think he's a fool uh, as a divine punishment for the accumulated effect. In other words, things have got so bad that God won't let them see reality. Well, I suspect the answer is probably both. (laughs) It's mysterious and, and, you know, thinking about this kind of thing too long does fry the brain. Um... It's quite hard to get our heads around exactly the relationship between God's involvement and human responsibility. It's just fascinating how again and again and again the Bible just asserts, yes, God is sovereign, but people are responsible. We can't always figure out how the two dovetail, but the two are just asserted nonetheless. And there is something profoundly logical here. That doesn't mean that Israel's being logical. In, in how they treat Hosea or uh, God, far from it. But the consequences of their actions are, uh, let me explain. What do we know about our universe? Now, that obviously is a broad question. We could go on for hours. I'm not asking for sort of encyclopedic answers to that. But, but how does the universe function? I wonder if you remember those extraordinary words of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, um, Words, actually, I think that the the Seamus Heaney poem I quoted yesterday alludes to. um, Luther King said, you know, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Now, he was not apparently the first person to utter those words. That uh, credit goes to an American abolitionist preacher uh, a generation or two before called Theodore Parker. But Luther King gave them their widest audience, I suspect. And what does that mean? What does he mean by that? Because, frankly, 
there's just so much about our universe, uh, so much about our world, so much about the daily news. Just pick up a newspaper from any day you choose. There's just so much that appears to contradict this. That actually the norm seems to be injustice, not heading towards justice. The strong man so often wins. Might trumps right. And the little people, the voiceless, the impoverished, the minorities, whether because of skin color, lifestyle, uh, beliefs, whatever it is, they're just statistics and seem to count for little. When others try to stand up for them, to warn or challenge the powerful or the vested interests, what do they get? Shut up, you fool! Don't be so political. Don't get compromised with the spirit of the age. Just be quiet. Are you a maniac? Are you insane? And twas ever thus. It's always been like this. The people go back to their snoring and their dreams because that's easier. While the watchman see all too clearly as they stand on the ramparts of the city walls, they see what's on the horizon. But ultimately they see what's at the end of the universe's moral arc. They see who has the last word. They see it because they know the creator of the universe. He crafted everything that exists. He crafted the universe with a moral core. It is no accident that when he finished his work, as we see in the early verses of Genesis, when he finishes his work, he saw it all and declared it very good. He's not done simply an aesthetically pleasing job, although his creation is profoundly pleasing. He had done a morally good work. But in the fallenness of this world, truth, justice, goodness, beauty are sometimes hard to find for now. For now, but not forever. Because you see, these things are embedded in the very heart of creation. They're, they're embedded, uh, as embedded as our chromosomes are to our biology, and as the laws of gravity and thermodynamics are in our environment. As is embedded as those things is the fact that evil will have consequences and will not win. It is how the universe is made. And because of that, Luther King is right. The arc of the moral universe is long for sure and sometimes, well, certainly far outstrips the length of our lifetimes. But... It bends towards justice because God is good and just. But we can also say that God does this deliberately. 
And that this nature, this moral nature, at the heart of everything that is, is one of the reasons why, to quote the Apostle Paul in the language of Romans, people are given over to the consequences of their sin. You remember how in Romans 1, he says several times, God handed them over, gave them over to the consequences. That in itself is an act of God's judgment or justice. And one of the ways that God hands Israel Ephraim over to the consequences of their sin is that they now are blinded so much that they call God's watchmen mad. I agree that this dynamic doesn't always seem to take place. I agree that again and again, the unjust and unscrupulous keep on appearing to get away with it. Which is certainly a reason why the prophets who proclaim God's justice seem to be fools or worse. Just look how Luther King was treated and derided and decried. But who will you believe? Hear Hosea out as we pick out just a few headlines in these three chapters. I don't know how you felt as they were read earlier. It's heavy stuff. And, you know, you sort of keep thinking, okay, well, we've had some pretty heavy chapters, and, and, and now we've got some pretty more heavy, pretty chapters. And, and it's like, how much more can we take of this? <laughs> How do you think I felt? (laughs) So what do we see? Well, first of all, the whirlwind facing the future consequences. Head back to the start of our section, chapter 8 and verse 1. Put the trumpet to your lips. An eagle is over the house of the Lord, because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. Now there it is in a nutshell. The people have broken the covenant. Now, consequently, nothing, and I I really mean nothing, nothing should have come as a surprise to them. It really shouldn't. Why? Well, yes, we live in a moral universe. Yes, our creator, he's a holy God. But none of this should have been a surprise for Israel, Ephraim or Judah or us, if we know our Bibles, for the simple reason that God had made the terms of his covenant very clear already through Moses. So Deuteronomy or Deuteronomy is Moses' last will and testament Before Moses dies and the people enter the promised land under Joshua, Moses has one final chance to make everything clear. There's no vagueness here. You can look it up in your own time afterwards. Incidentally, uh, there are handouts for all these uh, morning talks on the website, so you can pick those up um, to follow if you would like. But let me just read one or two little bits from Deuteronomy just to 
put this into, into context. Stay in Hosea just for a moment while I read. And in chapter 28, you have the kind of sort of final summation. Just to clarify everything else. And I guess, um, you know, seeing as a marriage relationship between um, Hosea and Goma is a window into understanding the relationship that Israel, Ephraim, and Judah have with God. So in a sense, we could see the covenant as a kind of prenup, a sort of prenuptial arrangement. And what do we see in this prenup? Well, Deuteronomy 28, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands that I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. And he goes on, the fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks and on and on. All these blessings. So far, so good. It's a great deal. What a great deal to sign up to. Fantastic. But it has terms. Like every prenup, I suppose. However, verse 15 of chapter 28, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and degrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. Various details down to verse 18. The fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks and so on and so forth. Now please understand, we see a word like curse And I guess these days we just think of Harry Potter. (laughs) This isn't blessings and curses in some kind of sort of magical Harry Potter Hogwarts sense. You know, you don't have classes in, in blessings and curses. It's not how it works. It's not magic. And it's not vindictiveness or divine mean spiritedness. It's not God being stingy or nasty or malicious. The cursing here is basically, yes, it's dark, it's negative, but it's an outworking of the covenant. Because you see, the God they're dealing with, the Lord who rescued them, the one who redeemed them out of Egypt, is the Lord of life. Life is because of him. So you cut yourself off from life the consequences, death, which is a curse, but inevitable, surely. This is the outworking of the covenant. It's very, very clear. And in other parts of the the first five books, of the Old Testament, the law, as it's sometimes called, the Torah, the Pentateuch. The language is even stronger. You know, God will talk about, I'm going to vomit you out of the land if you're unfaithful. If your chesed is like the morning dew. So don't. Don't be like that. Stick with me. Stick with the Lord of life. You'd be a fool not to, wouldn't you? That's madness. 
But you see, this is his character again. This is what he's like. Our theme. He's faithful. And it's the best way to live. In fact, it's, this is the blueprint for living in the land. And in a way, the Old Testament law is a, is, is a sort of a, a, a micro version, a, a kind of sort of um, a magnified version of what it means to live in the world, God's world, with our Creator. The prenup is clear. Hosea experiences the pain that God experiences from his faithless bride. And when viewed from the national perspective, the consequences, well it's interesting, you might have picked it up just from the Deuteronomy quotations, but certainly from uh, the Hosea 9 reading we had earlier. You notice how the consequences seem to be agricultural? Because this is about living in the land. We, we don't often appreciate the fact, but today life is still very agricultural. In fact, without agriculture, that's it. <laughs> There's no us. Um, we, we somehow have lost touch with the fact that basically we are as dependent on the weather cycles and topsoil and um, good harvests as humanity has ever been. It's just that we don't see it. We don't think about it. I don't know whether you've watched Clarkson's Farm um, in recent weeks. Uh, it's been on. Um, Jeremy Clarkson is Jeremy Clarkson, and you know that's fine. Um, but it's actually fascinating because you see, I think you see him change over the season, the, 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 the agricultural year, as he's just learning what an extraordinary thing and what a debt we have to our farmers. I've got two cousins who are farmers and I don't think I've ever really fully appreciated the kind of life they lead until even just watching this program. <laughs> the covenant was agricultural because basically, literally, life depended on it, uh, but... What most of us assume is that basically it's just about the processes that we learn and master because we're human beings and we dominate the planet and we're in charge and we know what we're doing and it's fine. We just got to get the technique right. Whereas actually the covenant makes it very clear. No, you've got to get your relationship with God right to live in his world. Agriculture was the primary occupation of the vast majority of people living in Israel, Ephraim. And so failures to be faithful to the Lord of life is bound to have consequences for the land. And that is why verse uh, 7 of chapter 8, Hosea appears to mix his metaphors. I was always taught at school never to mix metaphors. I've never understood the problem with that. I love mixing metaphors. I think that's the spice of life if um, one can put it in such terms. Um, Hosea 8, 7, verse 7, They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no head, it will produce no flower. Were it to yield grain, foreigners would swallow it up. It seems strange at first, um, but I'm not sure that it should, but isn't it the case that so many of the world's disasters that you know come onto our news screens 
So many of the world's tragedies seem, that seem at first sight to be natural disasters actually are no such thing when you scratch a little bit below the surface. You realize that actually there's much more human influence at work. Famine is a good example. Crops fail and the weather is the first to be blamed. And of course, that is a factor. But all too often, how, how often do we find human behavior, human policies, human incompetence, if not malice, are bigger causes? So for instance, tragically, starvation and famine, so often in human history, yes, they have occurred, but on the heels of war. War is not a natural disaster. But how often does a natural disaster follow from it? Chapter uh, 8, verse 7, it's, it, it evokes to my mind the images um, that one saw, you know, famously of the Great Depression uh, in the 1930s in many states. Vast swathes in, in the United States of Texas, Kansas, New Mexico, Colorado, Oklahoma were reduced to dust in what became known as the Dust Bowl. Decades of aggressive farming, turning miles of grassland over to cultivation, robbed the land of retaining a natural means of retaining moisture. It was a natural disaster, but as people have studied it and understood it better now, it was in large part caused by people. So when major droughts came... There was nothing in this vast region to retain water, to sustain life. And thousands of people, thousands of people, quite apart from all the the flora and fauna, thousands of people were left with nothing. And many people migrated on foot to places like California. But because this was the Great Depression, they couldn't find work there either. It was a terrible period, and that's just one And I dare say, all around the world, every country and region has had its experiences of such things. In Ireland, in this country, across Europe, across Asia. Now, obviously, that Dust Bowl experience was a different time from Hosea's, and the causes and factors that created the Dust Bowl were complex, and economics and agriculture, and all these things had their parts to play. I don't want to be simplistic, but this is the kind of thing that Hosea is describing. What you sow leads to what you reap. I mean, that's basic gardening. Even I know about that. Sow the wind, reap the whirlwind. And the thing is, it's all there in the covenant. You break the covenant, you forfeit its benefits. You withdraw from the Lord of life. How do you expect not to die? It's like one of those old-fashioned deep-sea divers, you know, that that used to go in these huge sort of big sort of Michelin Man-type suits and a huge helmet and thing, and they had a pipe up to the surface from which they could get their oxygen, long before you had sort of compression tanks and all the rest. Pretty dangerous. But basically, to cut yourself off from the Lord of life is as insane as one of those deep-sea divers just taking a knife to his air pipe. 
Might not die immediately, might have a bit of breath left, but death will come. So you break the covenant, you forfeit its benefits. The depressing thing is that for Israel Ephraim in Hosea's day, this is just so old school. This is not the first time it's happened. So secondly, we've had the whirlwind. Secondly, we have the calf, Israel's history lessons. What is their critical error? Now you might think, yes, we saw yesterday that the same thing occurs again today. So in chapter 8, verse 2, Israel cries out to me, our God, we acknowledge you. That's good. Good start. Well done. That might seem a positive moment. And this is perhaps a kind of, I don't know, sort of liturgical response in a way. You know, God is... Um, announcing that things are to come and that there is a threat. So sound the trumpet, the watchman's doing that, waking everybody up. And I guess the, 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 the cry in verse 2 there, it's a bit like a kind of sort of corporate response. What? Who, me? We're yours, Lord. What's the problem? What do you mean we've broken your covenant? We're, we're, we're yours. You're our God. We acknowledge you. I was very struck by this uh, poem I came across recently. I don't know anything about the poet. She's called Ruth Harms Culkin. Culkin. And uh, this is how it goes. It's a short one. You know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how eagerly I speak for you at a women's club. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the calloused feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew? I wonder how I would react if that was my ministry. A ministry where nobody saw and nobody knew except God. We really are who we are when we're alone before God. You remember the great Scottish pastor and preacher who just completely burnt out. He probably did get things out of kilter somewhat. Robert Murray McChain, what an extraordinary man he was. Died young, but you couldn't fault him for his passion for the Lord and his holiness. He said this, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. So, How's Israel Ephraim doing? The evidence is piling up somewhat. Chapter 8, verse 3. They've rejected what is good. Chapter 8, verse 4. They make idols out of precious metals. I mean, this is not sort of adding decorative features to their home. 
This is about spiritual allegiance. And as if it couldn't get more in your face, in verse 5, they have a metal calf. God cries out in his frustration, how long will they be incapable of purity? Verse 8, verse 6, they're from Israel. This calf, a metal worker has made it. It is not God. It will be broken in pieces, that calf of Samaria. I mean, the historical resonances are chilling. Of all things. What did the people say while Moses was up the mountain back in the book of Exodus? Once their golden calf was made. Do you remember what they said? These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. History is repeating itself. Incidentally, they weren't breaking the first commandment there, I don't think. I don't think they suddenly have switched allegiance to another god as if that was what's going on. No, I think they're breaking the second commandment about having images of God and worshipping God as they saw fit. So when they're saying, I think they still would have used words like Yahweh or whatever on their lips as the one who brought them out. But they have these gods now that they think can be used to represent Yahweh. And so they say, look, look at this. This, this will help you visualize. This will help you focus your mind. This is the image of God who brought you out of Egypt. Well, if you want images of God, friends, you don't have to look very far. Just look to your neighbor because God has given us his images You don't need a metal cow. Just look at us. We worship God in the ways that he tells us to. We can't make it up as we go along. Not after he's told us. But they've not learned their history lessons. And God has to tell them, this is man-made. It is not God. Now, appearances can be deceptive. In the rest of Hosea 8, Israel continues to go through the motions of Yahweh worship. Yes, they're in the northern kingdom. Yes, their capital is Samaria. Yes, they don't have the temple on Mount Zion. That's down in Jerusalem. But we're not allowed to go there anymore because, you know, that would sort of be a betrayal somehow of our northern uh, heritage. So, well, they're going to have their own altars and make sin offerings there in verse 11. They offer sacrifices to me, verse 13. And God is not interested. As we saw yesterday, he longs for chesed, covenant faithfulness. Without chesed, these sacrifices are irrelevant. Incidentally, perhaps I didn't clarify, it's not that when he says, I desire chesed, mercy, not sacrifice. He's not saying don't make sacrifices for the Lord. He's talking about the religious system. Going through the religious motions, turning up to church, going to prayer meetings, Bible studies, being known as devout. Going to Keswick. Surefire winner, that one. It counts for nothing. But please do come back to Keswick. (laughs) If the heart is not with God, well, their sin offerings, far from... Dealing with their sin, they compound their sin. Isn't that weird? You can obey God by going, doing these sacrifices and getting priests to do these things, but your obedience is and of itself compounding your sin because your heart is not with God. You have a reputation for religiousness. Perhaps in the office you're known as you know, a bit of the God squad. 
Maybe give you a bit of grief from time to time, but it's, you know, it's good humored in the office over coffee or whatever. Most of the time, yeah, it's fine. And you think, yeah, that's part of the deal. You know, it's persecution. That shows I'm on the right side at least. Yeah, I'm doing okay. But our hearts are not there. Remember Jesus? People come to him and say, Lord, Lord, uh, you know, we, 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 did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not speak for you? And, 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 you know, we've done all these things for you. And, and, you know, we've even had a bit of persecution for you. And someone was actually right, quite rude to us in the office the other day. And, you know, you know all about that. That's, that's good, isn't it? Yeah. Jesus says, I'm sorry, I don't think we've met. Uh, we say, oh God, we acknowledge you. And he says, I desire chesed. Not all this stuff. Look down to chapter 9, verse 10. You see, God remembers. It's as if he's taken the photo albums, the family albums down from the top shelf, and, and he's just sort of leafing through them, remembering the old days. He's leafing through, verse 10 of chapter 9. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. They had a unique start in life compared with every other nation on earth. What other nation could say their very existence was the result of God stepping in and creating it? What other nation could say we were slaves, but then through no sort of plan or um, deserts of our own, suddenly God takes us out and gives us a land and makes us a nation. They are not like all the other nations. So why do they want to be like all the other nations? <laughs> again and again. No sooner has this happened, Israel loses sight of their uniqueness. Verse 10, but when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved. Well, you can read about it in Numbers 25. As Numbers put it, Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. And ever since, that place represents, is representative of how easily Israel is led astray. And you become what you love. You become like whatever you worship. So they've lost sight of their crucial distinctive. They are unique. God made them so. Which is why there's always a tension when it comes to the monarchy. So do you remember when the people come to Samuel and say, we want a king to rule over us? Do you remember their motive? So that we can be like other nations. They've all got kings. Why can't we have our own king? And Samuel gets that and he says to, says to them, no, but, but your God is your king. And when they insist, he goes and speaks to God, and God says, um, yeah, I know you're right, I am their king, but do give them what they want. What are they thinking? What is God thinking? There's always an ambiguity about whether or not, in the Old Testament, whether or not having a king is a good thing or a bad thing. It's clearly God's plan, and yet the law itself, in Deuteronomy, there's a whole section warning you about how grim things will be when you have a king. Because what they're going to do to your sons and daughters and what they're going to do to your lands. And yet, at the same time, it's part of the plan. 
And we see this sort of independent spirit at work here, just back again to chapter 8, verse 4. They set up kings, presumably because they want to be like everybody else, without my consent. And the northern kingdom's been doing that ever since the split. It made political sense, but not covenant sense. You'd think that that would be enough to keep them focused on their God. Having this covenant, reading it, learning, understanding. But alas, no, they want to be like everybody else. So chapter 10, verse 3, the consequences are grim. Because this is a moral universe and God has arranged a prenup. Chapter 10, verse 3. They will say, we have no king because we did not revere the Lord. And even if we had a king, what could he do for us? In other words, they will learn their lesson, but it'll be too late. So is there an alternative to this whirlwind? Well, again, by the skin of my teeth, we've snuck in some light. I promise you that tomorrow is going to be pretty, pretty full of light. (laughs) Pretty much the whole thing, all right? But you've had to earn it. (laughs) (laughs) Trust the covenant maker. Chapter 10, verse 12. We're back to farming. So righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love of Hesed and break up your unplowed ground for it is time to seek the Lord. And I love this. Until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. Showers in a drought. Life. God knows that people fail. He always knew. I don't know whether you remember when it was the last Tory leadership election back in 2019. And, uh, you know, quite apart from all the politics and, and, and the, the personalities and everything else, I don't want to get involved in that, but, but I, I was very struck when, um, you know, the journalists were interviewing various uh, members of the Tory party who were going to be voting for the new leader and Boris was the front runner, and several people, you know, they'd be questioned about, well, what, what do you think about his track record of honesty and, and integrity and blah, 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 blah. And several people said that they had, and this was the phrase, priced it in, which was the sort of, you know, I, I think um, that's a sort of gambling term or, or an investment. I, I don't understand these things. I'd just like to make that clear. Um, you know, they factored it in. They, yes, we, we know what he's like. We know he's a bit of a rogue, but we've priced that in because, you know, all in all, we think that's, that's generally the way, you know, he's the best man for the job, blah, blah, blah. They priced it in. Well, here's the extraordinary thing of all. God knew Israel and Judah and the world. And he priced it in. In the covenant. He knew. He, he knew that when he was giving this covenant, that people would break it. 
Why else do you think within the covenant he had given all this stuff, the rigmarole, the sacrifices, everything? Why is that part and parcel of the covenant? It's simple. It's because he knows people will break the covenant. So here's the sort of cycle. You break the covenant. You break the laws. What do you do? Well, you read the covenant. You say, oh, well, there's some sacrifices that you can make to deal with that. So obey the covenant by going to the temple, getting the priest to do the sacrifice for sin or whatever it is, and then it's dealt with. So when you break the covenant, what do you do? You come back and obey the covenant. Another bit of the covenant, but it's part of the whole. It's the prenup. This is the deal. This is how God did it to keep sinful failures in. Which is why it is so tragic that they don't come to him. They go after all these other routes and roads and and schemes and plots and lovers and idols and everything else. And that is insane because he's done it all. And of course... The sacrificial system is a temporary, it's a stopgap for the great sacrifice to come. And we'll think a lot about this tomorrow. He's priced it in, ultimately, in the gospel of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The man who is king, who is God, who is saviour, who is sacrifice, who is temple. All of these things in him, he's priced it in, he knows. And so all that's left is trust him. Even when you don't trust him. Even when you screw up and mess up and you don't feel like following him anymore. You wake up in the morning, you think, what is the point? I can't do this anymore. Then you trust him and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's priced in. He knows. He's not surprised by anything. There is nothing you can do to surprise him. Just don't turn away from him. I want to close with a song that I'll play. And then we're running a little bit over. Please forgive me. I got carried away. It's probably the Jeremy Clarkson bit that I hadn't got in my notes. But anyway. (laughs) Um... I want to play this song because it blows my mind. It's not a Christian song. And yet it could almost be a setting of Hosea, Isaiah 55. And then after we've heard this, the band will come and close us with a final song before we break. This is a song called Trusty and True by Damien Rice, who's a a singer from the Republic of Ireland. Trusty and true 